Sometimes I make hand gestures and I forget this is a radio and I can't see them. I do that too. The Jogcast, cheaper than 139,000 cups of coffee, with James Bamber, Therese Kemwell, Fiona Healy, Monique Henson, Max Potter, Anna Scaife, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, April 2016, Extra Edition. Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Jogcast. I'm Charlie, and I'm here in our mysteriously clean studio with Therese and Fiona. Hello. Hi Charlie. It's nice, isn't it? It's lovely. Nice. Someone has done a really nice job putting all the postcards up on the wall. Uh, it yeah, works we, really well. They are very nice. That's gorgeous. And yes. we've got some nice photos up here as well of Jocast Life. Yes, yes, they're lovely. There we all are under the Lovell Telescope. Oh, that's pretty and we had some great fun, but I don't think we're going to do another one for five or ten years. Ten years. Mm. Seems ten like years. a sensible <laughs> that's, that's But it's somebody else's number. responsibility. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We'll get some emails saying, how did you do it? Can you help us? Yeah, maybe they'll invite us back. Poor people. Okay. <laughs> um, but back to the present day, we're back onto our regular schedule. So this is our second episode this month. I know people have been missing the extra episodes, and so it's good to be back. And in the show this time, Max interviews Dr. Ivaskin jimenez Serra about astrochemistry, and Anna Scaife answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Monique interviews Professor Richard Batty about superclass, a weak lensing deep field survey in this month's job bite. Hi, I'm here with Professor Richard Batty from the University of Manchester. Hello. Hello. And um actually just here today to talk about your work on a project called Superclass. Would you be able to start out talking a little bit about what that's about? So Superclass is a, a an e-Merlin legacy program and the, the it's an acronym, it stands for Supercluster Assisted uh, Shear Survey. And the objective is to explore um, a, a new technique called radio wheat lensing. So wheat lensing is a is something that's been done for for quite some time in the optical waveband, but it's not really been done before in the uh, um, the radio band. So what we'll do is we'll observe around one square degree of the sky uh, using eMerlin, and eMerlin has very high resolution. And we hope to find around uh, five to ten thousand galaxies in that region, and use them to uh, measure th- this property called uh, wheat lensing. Okay, and so you're looking at you said superclusters. So what is a supercluster? So a supercluster is an agglomeration of galaxy clusters. So a galaxy cluster is a cluster of galaxies, and a supercluster is a cluster of galaxy clusters it, it's a region of space which uh, largely you know massively over dense and that is the reason why we've chosen it is because that will mean that the wheat lensing signal will be uh, larger than average if we just picked an ordinary patch of the sky that we didn't know there was a supercluster there then the signal we were looking for would be much weaker so it should be easier to spot it in this region it, it should be uh, hopefully anyway so we know that there are at least five galaxy clusters in that region that have been observed uh, using x-ray telescopes so the the clusters they emit a strong signal in the x-ray band due to the intra-cl- intracluster gas and this region con- contains at least five that we know about and probably more so have those superclusters been studied much in the optical or just in the X-ray? So um, there are catalogues of superclusters that people have compiled from large redshift surveys. So things like the 2DF uh, Galaxy Redshift Survey, I mm-hmm. think they 
uh, created a catalog of superclusters by basically um, doing some analysis of their data. So they have been studied, but they're not particularly well understood. I have to say, mm-hmm. I mean, they're 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 not really they're not gravitationally bound. Typically, they correspond to over densities of of a maybe a factor of ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the universe, rather than a gravitationally bound object, would typically have over densities of a hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very; they've only formed quite recently, I suppose. Yes, that, that is the that is the belief uh, that they are in the process of forming. So, the whole way that the universe uh, is orientated is we believe that objects like galaxies they they, they form to start with, and then they they cluster into they they move together, mm-hmm. as it were. Uh, into galaxy clusters, and then ultimately the galaxy clusters themselves uh, form into superclusters, a sort of so-called hierarchical picture of structure mm-hmm. formation. Yep. Um, so why why are you interested in looking at lensing for these objects? Like why is that something worth studying? So the reason why we've instigated this survey is to, um, as I said earlier, radio weak lensing has not really been done before, or not to any great degree. It's a technique that's been used in optical waveband to look for dark matter and dark energy in the universe because it's it's a technique that allows us to map the mass in in the universe it's not been done as i said in in the radio band before but ultimately the square kilometer array which is a telescope that's been built in australia and and south africa will allow us to do weak lensing surveys that are as deep and as accurate as can be done using the optical wave band you need large numbers of galaxies in order to do this, but the the reason why it's not being done before in the in the in the radio is that the the source density is not particularly high, so this is in some sense a pioneering attempt to do this using the best instrument for doing this at the moment, which would be Merlin because of its very high resolution. So it's not exactly what we would like to be doing. We'd like to be doing the SKA survey now, but that will have to wait for another sort of ten years possibly uh, before we can do that. But we're just trying to do a very small patch of the sky, as was done in the optical initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, people did about one square degree in the optical to start with. Uh, now they're up to maybe doing 100 square degrees. And ultimately, we would look, like to do thousands of square degrees using the SKA. So it's kind of like a proof of concept. It's a proof of concept, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and into the bargain, we well, we will learn how to do this technique and we'll also find, as I say, 5,000 to 10,000 radio galaxies over such a large area and that will allow us to actually understand things about the actual properties of those galaxies as well as doing this uh, radio weak lensing measurement. Mm. Um, So as well as the fact that we're going to have the square kilometre array so we're going to have the kind of equipment there, what does radio lensing offer over optical lensing? So the whole purpose of le- uh, making a lensing measurement is to measure the the shape of galaxies that's what it basically comes down to mm-hmm. and the problem with doing that in well there's the positive side of doing that in the optical is that there are many galaxies that one can observe using the kind of telescopes that we have at the moment i mean you can get down to depths of maybe 10 per square arc minute on mm-hmm. the sky so that's the reason why you would do it in the optical but the problem is that optical observations are the resolution is dictated by the atmosphere atmospheric mm-hmm. uh, fluctuations and well people have people have worked very hard to make it work and it, it does seem to be working but there's always this residual uncertainty that's associated with the the atmospheric measurements 
in the radio, the radio observations, I mean, the fact that we can do radio observations from sea level in, in, in Cheshire at Jodrell Bank means that it is very much less affected by the atmosphere and therefore we will have a better idea of what we call the beam or the point spread function of the telescope, which is the optical response of the telescope. And it will now allow us, in principle, to make a a better measurement of uh, the shape of these galaxies or uh, one that's systematically better. Well, that's what the hope is anyway. As well as that, there are some other ideas that we might be able to use other aspects of the measurement of the galaxies, like the polarisation of the galaxies, to actually... Um, improve the, our understanding of, of weak lensing. So, um, what do you mean by that? Sorry. So, so polarization is a, a the, all light is light and electromagnetic radiation is polarized, and remarkably, the polarization angle of a galaxy is often very strongly related to its its elongation, the shape of elongation. Okay. What weak lensing involves is actually. Um, using the measured shape and the expected um, initial shape to measure how by how much the light has been deflected from its emission to where we measure it today. And that will mean that by using the polarisation, we have some handle on what the shape of the galaxy was when it was uh, emitted. So it helps you to constrain better kind of the problem of intrinsic alignments that all that, that's correct, yeah. could so, already be... Yeah. That, that, that is the basic idea. So there's there's a slight worry that the galaxies are already preferentially aligned when they when things start off, and that is a, a big systematic potential systematic error in doing high precision weak lensing measurements. So the idea is to try and improve our measurement of that um, using this new idea. Mm-hmm. So I think that those are the two main reasons for doing it um, in the radio. So given all that. How far along is the project now? What kind of stage are you at? So we have measured, uh, so we, we've taken about one quarter of the data. So the mm-hmm. total um, allocation of time was is just over 800 hours, which is, if you work it out, 40 days and 40 nights yeah, really. <laughs> of observations. So it's an it's a, it's a extremely large uh, amount of observing time. And we've taken about one quarter of that, so about mm-hmm. 200 hours, and that's been analysed already. And we're at the pro- in the process of trying to measure the shapes of those galaxies, and trying to just check that we, you know, the telescope's working properly and that everything's um, how we would like it to be. I believe, in fact, that some more observations were done last week, that, right. uh, and are actually possibly going on even this week. Okay. So, do you know if any unexpected challenges have come up in so far, or has it been going quite smoothly? The uh, Initially, uh, the, teles- the emailing telescope needed mm-hmm. to be commissioned, and so, so when it first came online, there were various teething problems that needed to be sorted out. Mm-hmm. So we believe that those have been sorted out to to high degree, and we feel comfortable with using up most of the time on observations. We, we believe that all those teething problems have been sorted out. And I mean, I dare say that when we when we actually get to the data and we start looking at the real nitty-gritty of it, that very mm-hmm. high precision that we need to make these measurements, we will find that there are some there are some issues that we hadn't envisaged, but we're reasonably confident that we'll be able to deal with whatever 
I mean, that's the whole point of doing this, I suppose, yes. is to find In, these issues. Yeah. Indeed. So, we, you know, we will be learning as we go along. We'll be learning about what um, what the problems potentially are. Mm-hmm. I mean, the principle, uh, I think everyone accepts that radio measurements should be less affected by the mm-hmm. atmosphere than the optical measurements, but it, there could easily be other problems of which we haven't envisaged. So that's part of the reason why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. No, well, that sounds really good. So good luck for the rest of the project anyway. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. And that interview was actually done by Monique in preparation for an article in a journal called Astronomy and Geophysics, which uh, we're helping out with. Oh, I'm in that. Oh, really? (laughs) I'm in that. I'm so excited. (laughs) What's, uh, What's your role? Uh, well, they're, they're putting in some nice pictures of my Nova. Um, is this for the email in edition when that comes out? Yes, yes, it is. Yes, mm. it is. Uh, and they were all like, oh, we need a cover picture. We need a cover picture. And I was like, use mine, use mine. But they didn't. They said it was too boring. And they said, oh. no one wants to just look at a blob. But it's not just a blob. It's a blob with direction and acceleration. And I know that's hard to communicate in a picture, but, but I think... It... It's prettier than the pictures that I uh, usually produce. So. <laughs> <laughs> but a very own Megan Nago is writing the article. She's doing so much work. It's yeah. <laughs> and um, me and Therese helped look for information for her. Somewhat successfully. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes hard to contact academics in other mm. countries. Yeah. They're all very busy people. Mm. Anyway, thanks for that, Monique. Uh, now Max interviews Dr. Avasco and Jimenez Sarah about astrochemistry, massive star formation in infrared dark clouds and prebiotic chemistry. Hello, I'm Max Potter, and I'm joined by Dr. Ithasco and Jimenez Sierra, who's from UCL, and she's talking about astrochemistry. I've just been to a really interesting talk that went from very dense astrophysical topics to some sort of very exciting, almost sci-fi stuff. So we'll get onto that a bit later. Yeah, so say hello, Ithaskun, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what got you interested in astrochemistry. Hello. Um, hello to everyone. So it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, so why did I become interested in astrochemistry? Well, uh, so this was when I finished uh, my undergrad studies. And then I started looking around for a PhD, uh, PhD projects. And then I got in contact with who was going to be my PhD supervisor back in Madrid, uh, in Spain. And then uh, he told me all these exciting things about star forming regions and how molecules can actually tell you a lot of information about them. And then I was also attracted by, uh, you know, radio telescopes. So if you have seen, for example, the film uh, Contact, right? So that's one of the main uh, interferometers, radio interferometers that we have. And I was always, you know, very interested in trying to do or trying to use that kind of instrument or that kind of instrumentation facilities. So I thought it was like a great thing to do. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, that's when I started. I think Contact was one of the films that inspired me to be interested in physics as well, actually. That's a real blast from the past. Yeah. So astrochemistry, I mean, when you think of chemistry, you sort of think of Bunsen burners and and flasks (laughs) in the lab. But astronomy is very different to that. So how do you bring the two together? So basically, I mean, when you look at, you know that our galaxy, 
so and then all the bays in between stars so it's basically filled with gas and uh, with particles very small particles of dust uh, so actually dust and that gas, uh, so those are key for these chemical reactions to occur. So when we talk about chemistry in the interstellar medium, so we are basically talking about gas phase chemistry. Okay, so we basically have uh, like a volume of gas in which these molecules, like very simple molecules generally, like uh, for example, carbon monoxide, so one atom, one carbon atom joint, one oxygen atom, and then we also have uh, molecular hydrogen as well. So those are the most abundant uh, molecules in the terrestrial medium. So basically what we do is we try to understand all those gas phase reactions and depending on the physical conditions, on the density or on the temperature that uh, there is in uh, particular regions of the interstellar medium, then uh, there are some reactions that are more favorable or there are others that lead to the destruction of some molecules. So basically by trying to understand what molecules we find, so we can track back what physical processes or whether there was a high temperatures or whether there was a radiation field, UV photon radiation field, or whether there were shock waves. So that's the kind of things that we try we try to understand. Okay. We try to play with. That's interesting. So you mentioned shock waves then, that's something that came up a few times in the talk. Could mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about what a shock wave is and why it's, why it's relevant okay. to this sort of chemistry? Yes, you can find shock waves in uh, many different types of environments. So you can find shock waves in star forming regions. So when you form um, a solar type star. Basically, one of the processes when the star starts accreting gas, uh, forming a circumstellar disk, then it needs to uh, preserve angular momentum. And then the way to preserve angular momentum is by injecting uh, material through the poles or, you know, in the direction of the, of the poles. And those, when it injects uh, that material, then as it propagates away from the protostar, then that produces uh, shock waves. Okay. So that's one of the one of the regions where we can find okay. shock waves. Another region is uh, supernovae explosions. But in our case, so we do uh, study chemistry in these star forming regions because that's where uh, most of the molecular gas is present. Right. So, for example, what I talked about in the in the talk was uh, about one particular molecule, silicon monoxide. And silicon is one of the main constituents of uh, these small particles, dust grains. So if you see uh, this molecule in the gas phase, that means that you have destroyed dust grains. And then you can say that because the dust grain has been destroyed, the only way to destroy it is by shock waves. Okay. So that's the way to, right. to track back. So you sort of, um, by looking at the composition of these gases and these clouds, you can treat them as a kind of uh, fingerprint or, or evidence or of, yeah, of yeah. what has happened yes. before and the environment that they're in. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And how, how exactly can you tell which chemicals you're looking at? Well, ah, because of, you use spectroscopy. Okay. <laughs> so basically, so every, so this, these are supplies uh, to atoms, but in molecules, uh, so they, every molecule has its, uh, as you say, its fingerprints or its uh, uh, spectral properties. So every molecule, so especially these molecules that are in very cold environments, so the only way to release energy is by rotational, what we call rotational transitions. So, and that gives, so that's a photon that gets emitted and that photon has a very low energy 
And that's uh, when you observe it at a millimeter wavelengths. So what you find is a is a basically a molecular line. So it's a, a spectral. So you have the spectrum of that molecule for what that particular frequency. But every molecule has a full spectrum across uh, uh, the millimeter part of the of the of the spectrum of the light. And then by looking at that, those particular frequencies, those particular lines, then you can know what molecule you're looking at. Right. Okay. Did I explain it? Yeah. No. That's great. <laughs> so can I just check? I understand. It's like. Um... If you've got a full spectrum of light, like the rainbow, mm -hmm. there might be bits of it that are brighter than others, and that's to, those specific bits represent a kind of they look like a barcode, right? And that's kind of the the fingerprint of the molecule in in some way. So, so the every molecule. So if you have a look at the because this is not in the in the optical part of the spectrum, right, right. You know, so it's more in the millimeter part. Uh, so then what you find is that if you have a look at the spectrum at that particular part of the spectrum, it would be like spikes. Yeah. Spikes across the spectrum. Okay. Because that corresponds to the photons being emitted by the molecule from every uh, level or from every level of energy, let's okay. say. Right. So, Brilliant. but it would be like spikes. Yeah, like. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's great. <laughs> cool. Um, so and they that's... do not change in frequency. That's, that's why. Right, that's the crucial thing. Yeah, right? they, they're they always they, the same. Exactly, they're always the same because it's something particular of uh, that molecule. For a specific molecule, yeah. Yes. And yeah. then you know that if you've got a similar pattern, but it's it's slightly different, then it's been red-shifted or blue-shifted. Exactly. Yeah. Off, yeah. So yeah. that you can build up uh, a picture of how things are moving inside these clouds by looking at exactly at that with spectroscopy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, brilliant. So, so that's how you do it. Um, so what are you looking at with it? What sort of problems can you solve by using astrochemistry? Okay, so by using astrochemistry, I mean, you can cover many different types of problems. The ones that I, I'm interested in are the ones uh, involving the formation of the most massive stars in our galaxy. So for that, I typically observe very dark and very dense molecular clouds uh, in our galaxy. And then you can look at them, for example, if when you have a look at the uh, Milky Way in a dark night, and then sometimes you can see that there are dark patches across the galactic plane. So those are very massive uh, molecular clouds. And then you see those dark patches because dust is absorbing a lot of uh, the light. So in order to detect those clouds, that's why we detect molecules, because they are in a different uh, range of the spectrum. And uh, we can also detect the emission of dust, but at other parts of the spectrum as well. So what I'm interested in is looking at these very dark clouds. And uh, I observe all these different molecules to try to understand how they move, how these gas uh, move inside them and try to say something about how, how massive stars form, whether they form directly from uh, by gravity, by having a massive core uh, collapsing by gravity, basically falling uh, onto itself, or uh, whether instead you have very little uh, seeds initi initially form stars, lower mass stars, and then uh, they start accreting or they start gathering mass from the surrounding core and uh, lead to more massive stars in the end. Okay, brilliant. Uh, so that's that's really interesting. So you can, you mentioned there briefly that there were sort of competing theories about how these massive stars form. And they form in these regions, these sort of molecular clouds. 
um, which we can get very nice pictures of actually. Before I talk about that,、uh, there was the Nessie Nebula that you showed、yes. in the, yeah, the yeah. presentation. I thought that was a really nice,、um, <laughs> really nice picture. You should definitely look that one up if you're listening.、Um, is there a reason why it's called the Nessie Nebula? I think it's because it's a,、uh, you know, it's like very wavy. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. So that's that's even more sci-fi than yeah, just the folks、yes. talking about. <laughs> yeah, I didn't put the name. I think some people like to put them, you know, to give them names. <laughs> I prefer to go to the technical. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So yeah, yeah there's you... another one called the dragon, the, the the dragon or the dragon nebula. The dragon or, nebula. Yeah, dragon, okay. Yeah. yeah, I've seen the the horse head nebula is the famous one, isn't oh, the it? Horse, yeah. The, uh, yes. Dragon nebula is a much cooler name. Yeah. <laughs>、um, so in star forming regions in these molecular gas clouds, there are competing theories about how these massive stars could be made at the same time as making the sort of normal sized stars. How does that happen, and what competing theories are there, and how can astrochemistry be used to discern between the two? Okay, so the current theories for the formation of these、uh, of the most massive stars. So there are two of them. The first one is、um, the one in which gravity really takes the main role. So basically, we have a very massive core, and then that collapses, so that basically gravity makes it fall onto itself, and then we form this very massive protostar inside. Then there's another theory in which, so we first、uh, form these small seeds、uh, all across the core, and then the ones that are located right at the center. So, because they are at the center of what we call the potential well, so it's basically they are at the center. So gravity is exactly same, the same mechanism as gravity, and then that makes those little seeds start accreting gas or gathering gas、uh, from the surrounding environment, so they can grow later on. So what we've been trying to do is by so we've been observing these big cores, these massive cores, by using interferometers. Uh, such as the millimeter array and、uh, the Atacama Large millimeter array. So what we've been trying to understand is、uh, how these、uh, cores fragment, because one key point is to determine whether we see those little seeds or whether we don't see anything. Okay, and then for that we use the emission, especially from dust. So when we go with interferometers and then we see like blobs, basically when you when you get、uh, an image from an interferometer,、uh, they are like、uh, like blobs, <laughs> and they may be like bright blobs or they might be small blobs, right, okay. <laughs> more diffuse.、Uh, so, but you know those blobs are important because they actually、uh, have a lot of information, provide a lot of information. So whether they are yeah, you know very faint or diffuse or they have like an extended structure or whether they are compact. So what we are finding is something in between the two the two theories. So we are not finding these very massive cores inside, but we are not finding either this population of small seeds. So、okay. what we are proposing is you first so these. Massive cores, so they start showing some small seeds in the center. Those seeds start accreting,、uh, accreting gas. They become more massive, and then the other seeds that will lead to the formation of low-mass protostars will appear later on. Okay, and how does astrochemistry justify、yes. the the difference between the, the difference、two? between? Because with molecules, so we can give information about the time evolution. So at the beginning, so we we basically observe the molecular content in all these different types of cores at different stages of evolution. So the ones that show very little structure at the beginning, so we don't see any molecules. 
okay? okay? So which means that there's no protostar having any activity or in affecting very little chemically, from a chemical point of view, the environment. Then when uh, the protostar, the seed, starts accreting, accreting gas, then the protostar forms, and then once the protostar forms, that heats up the surrounding environment, and then you start seeing molecules. Right. Okay. So then the molecules are key for establishing a world evolutionary stage right. in the core. That's interesting. So in physics, you often, when you've got a filamentation process, mm-hmm. um, what happens is a sort of cascade of filamentation versus a merging of filaments. Uh-huh. And what I mean by that is you've got, a, let's say you've got a large scale blob of gas uh-huh. and it is, you know, diffuse and it's splitting up into smaller, denser blobs of gas. Mm-hmm those themselves can split up into smaller, denser balls of gas, which can go on to form stars, or they could merge together and form bigger stars. Is it a competition between the two scales? Because that, that would be similar to other physics that I'm, I'm familiar with personally. Mm-hmm. Or is it something different? If I, am I on the wrong tracks? <laughs> no, no, in, indeed. So for some of the cores that we are observing, so if uh, we observe them with uh, interferometers at even higher angular, so with um, higher angular resolution, which means that we, we observe it uh, you know, with finer, you know, the images are even finer and finer basically. Do you right. say that? The finer yeah, yeah. Finer? yeah, sure. Yeah. So in some cases, we see that when, uh, you know, an initially relatively massive core uh, was observed with one particular resolution, then it splits up in different condensations. Yeah. So that really happens in some... So that's actually the general trend. However, there are other cases in which you do observe that those cores do not split. Right. So you definitely form, you know, massive, those, yeah. those massive cores. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's really cool. I think I think it's it's probably time to move on to the the really exciting stuff, which is <laughs> the this prebiotic chemistry. Now, when I when I was researching before this, I had a look at what prebiotic chemistry actually meant, the specific definition of it, and I was worried because it it looks like it can be a bit. It just means before life, uh-huh. right? But we are actually talking about the origin of life, that which is really exciting. So, could you talk a little bit about um, your recent studies into that and and why you got interested in it and what it could all mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've been always interested, you know, because uh, basically as astrochemist, the ultimate goal of astrochemistry is to try to understand how you move uh, from a very simple chemistry in the interstellar medium to actually the origin of life. So an astrochemist, so that's basically what everyone would love to do. I am uh, currently, or what we are currently doing uh, at UCL, so is to try to see how from those very small molecules we could form in the the interstellar medium prebiotic species such as amino acids. So and in particular, we are working on one particular amino acid, which is glycine, because this is the simplest one. Uh, that that we know of. Also, this is not science fiction because glycine has been detected in meteorites. So, you know, when uh, the the composition of meteorites has, has been analyzed in the lab. So people have found over 70 amino acids. And one of the most abundant ones is glycine and the second one, alanine, or the other way around. So I'm not sure. I think it's alanine the most abundant and then the second one is, is right. glycine. Right, okay. Also, you know, there, there's some work or some uh, results provided by the Stardust mission or in uh, the Built2 Built uh, comment. And then they also proposed that they had detected uh, glycine. 
So you see, so glycine, uh, you know, it has been like a very interesting target for astrochemists, like for a long while, for 10 years. The problem is that it is very difficult to detect in staph form in region. So we had, when it has been searched for, uh, especially towards the, the molecular clouds around the galactic center, because this, so the galactic center is a very turbulent uh, region. It's very rich from the chemical point of view. There are lots of molecules. There's actually a lot of ethanol, which as you know, so is one of the main constituents of uh, alcoholic drinks. Right. <laughs> So the galactic center is full of ethanol. Okay, great. Sounds <laughs> so, like a great place to party. Actually, so one of my friends calculated that the amount of ethanol in the galactic center could actually uh, give enough beer for three October firsts. You see, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot. It's a lot of <laughs> brilliant. It's a lot of alcohol. That's, that's impressive. That it's is. impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're really saying is that Oktoberfest people consume an astronomical amount of alcohol. Yes, right? okay. yeah, that's definitely true. I've, I've seen it. Yes, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> so anyway, so whatever my my point was that so you know when people in the past have tried to look at this region. This region is very complicated, very, you know, the, when you look, do you remember that before we are saying that in this spectrum, you know, in the spectra towards these uh, regions of we saw spikes? Yes. Imagine like uh, millions of spikes all joined together. So if you try to find, you know, the right spike for your molecule, then it's going to be very challenging. Right, because it's so close to the it's so other close, ones that are yeah, nearby one, in the spectrum. Exactly. Right. So then what we are trying now to do is to see whether we could we can detect glycine, but in simpler in simpler objects, and in particular we are targeting what we call uh, the precursors of solar systems, so uh, regions that we know that they are going to be forming uh, uh, solar type systems or the systems like our 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 own so for that we are doing uh, we've been doing some theoretical modeling and then in the future we hopefully we will be doing some observations so we are trying to see first uh, you know what parts of the spectrum of light we should be targeting because okay. glycine uh, is uh, more likely to be detected in one regions and not in the others and then second we are trying to see uh, what other molecules may lead to the formation of glycine so what are the precursors of uh, this amino acid. Right. Okay, that, that's really that's really great. So you mentioned in the talk uh, one example of this sort of study, which was uh, L1544, pre-stellar core. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell me what a pre-stellar core is and why this one in particular was so exciting? Yes. So a pre-stellar core, as I said before, so is like the initial conditions of solar systems. Yeah. And then it's basically is a dense uh, and cold condensation and we know that that condensation is gravitationally collapsing so gravity is acting on it and it's falling onto itself so there's no protostar inside so that's why it's cold and that's why we call it pre-stellar because it's before (laughs) a star has has been formed then we decided to take this one in particular and because it has been studied very well in the past so we have the information about the the distribution of the density of the temperature and you know that for chemistry that's uh, very important because those are actually the key parameters yeah. uh, to understand uh, the chemistry and then we also uh, decided to take this one because it's very peculiar from the point of view that we detected water vapor in this crystalline core right so this was the first detection towards this kind of object, and that was reported in uh, like two, three, three years ago by using the Herschel uh, satellite. 
I have to say that water observations are very challenging from the from the surface. So you need to go to space okay. to actually measure uh, water. Right. Is that because we've got so much in our atmosphere that it exactly just gets it blocks? Yeah, yeah, it blocks all the all the uh, emission coming from water. Right. So yes, and then we detected water vapor. And why is this important? So this is important because, so as I said before, dust grains play an important role in the chemistry of the interstellar medium. So dust grains are very small dust particles, so like, like the ones that we have here uh, in the Earth, but they are smaller. Uh, and then uh, these dust particles, so they are surrounded by ices. And then the main constituent of these ices is water. So if we see water in the gas phase, so this water vapor, that means that a small fraction of those ices have come off, so they have been injected into the gas phase. And those ices are actually a little bit dirty, so in the sense that they have impurities. So they have other types of molecules, other type of stuff. And then among that stuff, there are these complex organics. Right. So because we know that there's water vapor, we are also sure that there are going to be uh, complex organic molecules. And then we hope that among those complex organics, we can find glycine. Right. Okay. Brilliant. So but what is it about glycine in particular? Like it's an amino acid and it's the simplest amino acid. Mm -hmm. But why is that such, would that be such an exciting discovery to find glycine? I mean, glycine, uh, you know, that is a key molecule for the synthesis of proteins. Right. And basically we are targeting glycine, as you said, because it's the simplest one. And that means, do you remember that before we said that every molecule has its spectrum mm -hmm. and has its spikes, no, yeah. in the part of the spectrum? Yeah, yeah. So the larger the molecule, the more populated is going to be that spectrum. So the more spikes are going to be. Or you're going to find. So the if you target the simplest one, then it's going to be you know the one with less spikes, and it's going to be easier to detect. Right. So that's why. Okay. So it's an easy detection. It's an easy. It's easier to detect. An easier detection. Easier okay. to detect than. Yeah. Um, but it could mean that there are more complex proteins being synthesized. Exactly. Or at least you know that we we will be able to say that we. So it is possible to synthesize glycine, so the simplest amino acid. So it's likely that you can do also yeah. the same for the larger ones. Right. Fantastic. Because you also find it in meteorites, so somehow you know they yeah. must they must come you know from yeah. from somewhere. So that's some, that was what I was going to ask next. Actually, is we usually hear about what could have possibly seeded life on Earth? Was it an impact with a with a meteorite, or uh, could comets have brought it to our solar system? So is this field related to that? Are the yeah, findings yeah. that you've got comparable to, to theirs? Yeah, exactly. So the idea is basically, so so the idea is to try to understand the chemistry at all these different stages. So we are probing the initial stages of the solar system, but indeed, so we need to compare, you know, the chemical composition of all these, how uh, those organics are transferred from the gas to then to solid bodies, so to meteorites, comets, and then ideally how those solid bodies entered, you know, or went through our the, the Earth's atmosphere and then uh, impacted onto the surface and were released. Right. So that's basically the the, the theory or the yeah the scenario that we are playing with at the moment. But we need to do it bits by bits. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a very complicated yeah, problem. Yeah, to, to try to join everything yeah. together, all the information together. Very long time scales as well yeah, to, to exactly. join together. So, yeah. um, which is something that uh, was raised at the end of the talk that we just had. 
you know, complex organics, these proteins and amino acids, they, they didn't exist right from the start of the universe. Mm-hmm. So although glycine is the simplest one, mm-hmm. it's not the simplest thing that could exist. So how were these complex organic molecules made originally? And roughly, how long do you reckon they've been around for? Okay, so then we we know that these complex organics, so in order to uh, to exist, so we need to have these very tiny dust particles. Okay, so then, uh, as uh, you know, uh, then dust is formed very early in the universe. No, so now there are theories saying that in uh, so you could form uh, dust, large amounts or significant amounts of dust in supernovae explosions. So once you have dust, that means that all the chemistry starts appearing. Okay. Okay, because you can start forming water, and then you can start forming. You know, once you have oxygen, carbon uh, in the gas phase, in atoms uh, in the gas phase, then those that stick on the surface of uh, these dust particles. They start reacting, and then you form all these uh, complex organics. So what we currently know, with thanks to the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, is that we see water, water vapor, in galaxies at redshifts uh, up to six. Okay. So, which means that if you see water, you probably uh, have other, you know, other complex organics. Right. Uh, in that, the problem is to detect them because they are very yeah. difficult to detect. So, what do you think this means for you know little green men? What what sort of uh, alien civilizations and things? What can this tell us about the origins of life in the universe, not necessarily just us? Well, I think it's. Uh, you know, I think it's important from our point of view. So we are first uh, uh, interested in, in knowing whether uh, these prebiotic molecules can be formed in, in our galaxy, because that would mean that, you know, if you form these uh, amino acids, then that would be a natural uh, way of explaining the origin of life on Earth. Then, what I do believe is that if you have that, do you remember that we were talking about the formation of water uh, very early in the universe, and then that probably has related uh, some chemistry. So I do believe that, you know, it's like uh, the universe was meant to make this chemistry, or to evolve into this very uh, complex chemistry. And so, you know, the implications for this, for green men, that, that I don't know. Yeah, so that's really exciting to think about. So I think the final question uh, is, what is the most exciting thing about working in your field? What do you find, what's the coolest thing about your job? The uh, I think probably, you know, all these work about trying to detect uh, amino acids and trying to understand how chemistry can become so complex in the ISM, how that is transferred into solid bodies and then later on onto planets. I think that's going to be a big thing in the future, especially when we start exploring, you know, other planets uh, farther away from us. So we can say something about the composition of their atmospheres or whether, you know, there's biological content within them. I think that's going to be very exciting. But we will probably have to wait a little bit for that. (laughs) Just a little bit. (laughs) Just a little bit. That's brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. No, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for that. And now we've got some things to mention before we move on with the show. We're about to do a listener survey. Um, So we've met some of our listeners now, thanks to Geocast Live. And that was really awesome. But unfortunately, we couldn't meet everyone because we could only accept around 50 people to come and watch. But we'd like to hear some more from everyone. 
about what they think of the job cast, about how they think it's doing, whether they approve, whether they think things can be changed, whether you think we're dragging on too long now, whether you think that we don't go on for long enough. <laughs> what your bank details are. Yeah, yeah, your social security your number, all of just that. Just all, all yeah. those things. Yeah. <laughs> any, in, any, any relevant information. You can trust really. us with it. We're scientists. <laughs> exactly. We need it for our data. <laughs> yeah, big data. That's the buzzword these days, yeah, isn't it? Big data, um, yeah. But no, all we really want to know is how we can improve the job cast. So... While preparing for Jogcast Live, I was listening through some of the back episodes because not many of the people on the staff have listened to mm-hmm. episodes since the beginning. I haven't listened to all of them. I have not listened to them. What are you but... talking about? Of course I've watched all, like... <laughs> watched? <laughs> oh, you could have watched them I all. mean, listened. Um, <laughs> there, are only a few, the... uh, there are only a few video episodes, so that is a, a, a feasible thing. <laughs> oh, Lord, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I've listened to a few from the past, and they have been changing. And I know some of the listeners have been listening since the very beginning, yeah. so they might have some ideas for things that we might want to bring back, possibly, if they could direct us to that. Oh, no, that seems like that a really cool. good idea. Because yeah. sadly, such is the nature of uh, well, academic, academic life. life. Yeah. yeah, we move yeah. away and then other yeah. people take control. So transient. And stuff just gets lost. So that'd be really cool. We'd, no, I think that's wonderful. It'd be good to get some direction. So yeah, we're going to put on that on our website. Take a look. Please approve of us. <laughs> <laughs> we really want your approval. Uh, so... On Wednesday, the 20th of April, there'll be a pint of science with Mike Fold, who is a British-American astronaut and physicist. Oh. Yep. So, um, so he's four things. Many, many things, yes. And so what's he What's he doing? It's a pint of science. So it's that's... a pint of science. <laughs> uh, it's a thing. It's a, The pint of science is where you go into a pub and you have some pints and other people come in also and have Learn pints. some science. Uh, and yeah, and learn some science. You sit there with your pint and you talk about science, uh, I think. I've never done it. I know my supervisor uh, is involved. So it's a chance to, to interact face-to-face with brilliant scientists yeah. and pints. And uh, actually, from my experience, astronauts are the most eloquent of speakers. So oh, I spoke to an astronaut once. It was so cool. Yeah. I imagine seeing something that almost nobody else on the planet in the world has seen is... It must be mind-blowing. It must be really, really weird to come back here and just be like, literally, I am one of only a handful of people who's ever seen that. It must give you a completely different perspective on just life and just all the different problems that exist. Yeah. I'd love to hear about it firsthand, yeah. yeah. Especially over a pint, because yeah. that gets you more I'm chatty. kind of convincing myself to go to this now. <laughs> mm. So when's that again? That's on Wednesday, the 20th of April. I'm sure that some of the Jogcast people will be there. Oh, I think yeah. So, yeah. And uh, if you want to know like actual relevant details, like where it's on and what time it's on and stuff, you can go to their website. Um, uh, we'll put that we'll on, put our put on our website. On our website. Yeah. Yeah. Um, finally, the last event we have to talk about is the full Manchester Festival, which is taking place from the 23rd to the 25th of May. And tickets are on sale on Monday, the 18th of April. Uh, speakers at this festival include Tim O'Brien, Sarah Bridal and Mitch Michelager. All those people are really cool. You should definitely come and hear them speak. One um, of them's your supervisor. Is that why you said that? Yeah, I have to say that. Yeah, yeah. Tim O'Brien's my supervisor and he, he's very good at speaking. Um, oh, you yeah. should go listen to him speaking. Uh, he's got a very impressive beard as well. If you, if you, uh, so, and I think Mitch Mitch also has a beard. Yeah. No, wait, no, he doesn't. He's shaved recently, I think. Is it? Oh, what a shame. Sarah has no beard, but she's still pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, there's a Facebook page for it, which we'll link you to on our website. So now we come to part of our show where we talk about the random stuff that we couldn't fit in anywhere else. Uh, it's the odds and ends. And I guess I'm going first with my odd and end. For this show, I'm going to be talking about SpaceX's uh, recent exciting development that happened uh, last Friday. So um, uh, as you may be aware, SpaceX have been trying for a long time now to um, land the 
launch bit of of a rocket that, that goes into space. So a rocket, how that works, if you don't know, um, is there's a launchy bit that uh, goes up and then that <laughs> falls off and then the rest of it goes up into space and the launchy bit falls in the sea. But uh, then, then they were like, that's a real waste of money and, and rockets. Mm-hmm. So they were like, wouldn't it be great if instead of falling in the sea, uh, it could fall on a boat and instead of falling, it could land so that it doesn't explode. And it took them ages. It took them a really long time to get it to not explode. This um, was yeah. try number... F- how many? Five? Yeah, five or six. They almost, and, um, they almost got it a few times. Yeah, yeah but it just barely kept exploding. But then there's, yeah, there's a really violent reaction to it if it goes slightly wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, there's some great videos of it landing and you're like, oh, 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 and then it explodes. Um, <laughs> and uh, actually, that other crowd, Blue something, something Blue, Jeff Bezos was in charge of it. They've actually managed to do it, but no one cares about them. Um, oh. so, <laughs> so Elon Musk has succeeded in doing this, and it's really, really exciting. So um, I'm reading about it on the Ars Technica website here, and uh, they have some really impressive footage of this rocket launching. Yeah, I've seen the video. Yeah, and then it just it just comes back down, and uh, and it just lands on this barge. I mean, they couldn't land it like on the land, obviously. They have it from multiple angles. They've got yeah. it. Uh, oh, do they? They've uh, got cool. a GoPro attached to. Oh wow, that's amazing! I haven't actually seen that. That's yeah. really really cool. So you um, can see that. So it's a it's a really good thing. It's a really good thing for space mm. travel because um, what this means is that it dramatically reduces the cost of sending a rocket up into space in the first place. If you, you can, can reuse it, yeah. if you can reuse this part of it. Now, back in like the seventies, they were talking about how they'd like to do this. I think NASA mm-hmm. and some other um, people like that were saying, you know, that it would reduce the cost of launching a rocket from like twenty five mm-hmm. million dollars down to $25 or oh something like that. Now, that was a bit ambitious. Um, yeah. It really ended up costing a bit more than that. But at the same... Yeah, here we go. NASA said in the 1970s the shuttle would slash the cost of delivering oh. payloads into space to $25 a, oh, $25 a pound. Uh, yeah, I was going to say... <laughs> Not $25 a launch. Yeah, if, if you could get that much rocket fuel for $25. I know, yeah. I was like, that's impressive. really weird. I was like, why were the scientists saying that? It's obviously stupid. Anyway, $25 a pound. It ended up costing closer to... To twenty five thousand dollars a pound in this instance, but at the same but time, the shuttles ended up being more expensive, I think, than the the older method of sending people up into space. So actually, having the reusable shuttle ended up costing more money, I think. Than, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, mm. it ended up being very expensive. Mm. Blue Origin, Blue Origin, they've done it. They've managed it um, with the new Shepard propulsion module um, already. So it's a really exciting time. Yeah, for just I know. Space it's, amazing. Travel, yeah. it's just brilliant that companies are getting involved in it, right? Because yeah. that will drive no, absolutely. innovation no, although quite I a bit, do I would think. Want to say, competition. Mm. I do want to say that like there this. has been some cooperation between SpaceX and NASA, that actually mm. NASA have provided some of the funds um, to Elon Musk and to SpaceX for this project. So, um, but SpaceX but have been that, delivering to the International exactly, Space Exactly, yeah. No, it's this really nice now. kind of symbiotic, mm. but symbiotic even, but, relationship. Yeah, but even that's going to drive kind of um, competition and work in the thing, because people will compete then for... NASA's cooperation or funding yes, because exactly. whoever exactly. shows they are the best at it. Yeah. Now I, I get all my Elon Musk news from my boyfriend who's like <laughs> the biggest Elon Musk fanboy in the world. Like I mean on my list is like George Clooney and uh, you know other other nice people like that. His list is just Elon Musk. <laughs> um, well, he's done some impressive stuff. Yeah no he's amazing. He's really really cool. Anyway, that's enough about that rocket. Um, now, Therese is going to talk to you about a different rocket. Yeah, so I'm going, to, um, I'm going to talk about the recent press release that was with Stephen Hawking's um, 
they were talking about sending tiny, tiny little spaceships off to Alpha Centauri. Now, most of the headlines said, we are going to go to Alpha Centauri and look for aliens. It's mm. not exactly what the funding is for. Unless you, if you can fit inside a Raspberry Pi. I think it's the- <laughs> <laughs> no, so what, I mean, the headlines make it sound almost as if in 20 years, we will send these space, we will have this fleet of tiny little spaceships and we will Aww. send them to Alpha Centauri and we will, we will detect all of the wonderful things. But that's not, a, that's not quite, what's actually happening. What they've actually done is they've funded research into the development of these tiny little spaceships. So the idea is that in 20 years, maybe they might have a prototype or they will have worked out whether or not it's feasible, as opposed to the idea that they've actually funded the mission. They yeah. funded the research. And I'm guessing it will take a little bit longer than that to actually get there as well. Uh, yeah. So the idea is that the tiny little spaceships will travel, I think, at about 20% of the speed of light. Which is about a thousand times faster than what we've got already. A whole lot faster. Yeah. yeah. I think the idea is that they would get there within maybe like a generation or something mm. like that. So it, would, it wouldn't... Because Alpha Centauri is our nearest, um, is the nearest star to us. So it's the one we have the, the most chance of actually ever getting and, to. And um, just to point out, of... with our current technology, it would take about 30,000 years for us to get anything out there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, that would be really cool if they yeah. yeah, so the idea is that these tiny little spaceships, they'll be about the size, I think, of um, a chip in, in modern electronics. So they're they're quite small, very light, and they'll have... Um, like little space butterflies. Mm-hmm. But they'll have a huge sail, solar sail, then, that they can <gasps> like fire a laser at. Like little space butterflies. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and, then, and then you will just use that to shoot them off to, and because they're so little, it's, it's mm. not so And are they propelling the solar sail with something? With lasers. With lasers. Yeah, very ah. fancy, very fancy. But, I mean, the, the biggest issue seems to be how they'll actually... Um, so, I mean, getting there, that all seems kind of sensible. I'm sure, I'm sure there's... You can actually... We'll link to the, the website, which lists a bunch of the, the issues they foresee, uh, a bunch of the things they think they'll need to overcome with their funding. So we'll link to that because it's very interesting. They're being very open source about the whole thing, which is cool. But... Yeah, the, so the biggest issue though seems how, so you can, let's say you get your, your fleet of tiny spaceships off to Alpha Centauri, there's going to be no way to slow them down, so they're going to go past it, that's fine. But while they're going past it, we're going to need them to send back any information they have. Yeah, and that's a, that's a long way. But how many light years away is? Oh, four light years. Four, four light years. So, so. It's, it's very far away. So, I mean, you're going to have to, in order to send information, they're going to have to point the teeny tiny little spaceships towards Earth, they're going to have to send a signal that's strong enough and directed enough that we will be able to pick it up and they're going to have to that's a tiny little dot at that point. Be very yeah. difficult, they're going to yeah. have to have enough power left the at power, that time They're looking at using mm. like a one watt laser, I think. So it's going to be quite... It's not going to be a very strong signal. I think. Um, um, I, I think, think this will be the major thing that they'll have to overcome. I think it's really wonderful how space travel. We always associate it with things that are really big. You know, these big mm. rockets. You know, it's huge. It's so, you know, big and strong. Mm-hmm. And that actually, once we open our minds to the fact that things can be tiny and small, in um, a way, that's the way to go, right? Yeah, it makes exactly. things cheaper. It's makes cheaper, things yeah. faster. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's even cheaper, right, to get them up into it, in, just out of the Earth's orbit is, yeah. is cheaper. Exactly. So much, yeah, it must be so right, easy. So expensive to get heavy yeah, things up into no, space. But, um, my uh, my master supervisor, she used to tell this really good story. She used to work with Russians, and um, she she. Uh, talked about you know during the cold war the russians they would talk about oh we're gonna build you know the biggest skyscraper and uh we're gonna build the biggest boat and we're gonna build the biggest rocket and we're gonna build the biggest microchip <laughs> yeah i can see how that defeats the well if you've crammed more and more circ- small circuitry onto yeah that, no know. i think they meant just physically big mm. <laughs> big is impressive big is good yeah no, but small is good too yeah. i think that's the, the but, new motto both yeah. extremes yeah, yeah. obviously for a first pass uh Something small like this would be good. You do yeah. eventually need to be able to send people there or yeah. Well, yeah, robots, but I mean, but in terms now. of doing science, it would be very interesting to get anything there and actually 
Well, Keep direct. You've got to make a start. Mm. That would be very of like an ex. Yeah. You've got to make a start. Oh, that will excite the next generation in a way that. Well, oh, we were watching brilliant. Rosetta, the Rosetta landing, for example. Oh, that was. That was Imagine fabulous. sitting there watching the uh, the entry into it. Well, yeah. So it's a long sort of barrier. Solar system isn't a very defined line, but yeah. imagine no. sitting there waiting and seeing the first planet. Yeah, yeah. Well, because Voyager's left our solar system yeah, now, think, right? It's mm. well, debate apparent again, as you said, it's not a a very definitive line as this is the solar system, this is not the solar system. But mm. I think people generally are in agreement that it's and whatever things, we have decided at the boundary, right. it's things, probably past it. Things now. like Voyager, <laughs> things like Voyager and New Horizons um, are real examples of how these long term projects uh, are worth it because people will still be interested and people will still be excited. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's definite. But you see this with any mission in space is decades of planning even if it's just putting a telescope in orbit around the earth like say any of the x-ray telescopes that's decades of planning mm. like the people by the people who initiate those projects are near retirement by the time they like yeah are actually launched it must take a lot of dedication a, to yeah. go into the beginning yeah. of a project like this and realize that you may not see it through no, to the end. oh finish. definitely yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah but thank goodness people do do that people do yeah, yeah. <laughs> we get to enjoy the benefits we get of it to read the benefits so let's hope okay. we're still around when um well, when this technology comes into action. Then. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, well, they're hoping that the, the research is supposed to, is for 20 years is is effectively how long they have their budgeted for to do the research. So after that, if they have a working prototype, if they have a proof of concept, then maybe then they might actually get funding to, to actually send off this fleet, which would be very exciting. Fly, my British, fly, fly. Space this butterflies. Is how that's probably going to go. Oh, <laughs> I hope so. This is you directing your space butterflies off. If I'm directing them, that's how it's going to go. <laughs> and um, I have decided to do a little bit of a different thing for my own end. So we recently got an email in from John Murrell. He sent us a link to a, a news article. And he said, um, I'm not sure if this is meant to be a real paper or if it's an April Fool's joke. And then he goes on to explain what this BBC article was quoting. He was quoting a, a paper that actually came out in the archive, which is the sort of depository for new scientific journals, very close to April Fool's Day. So I did a little bit of searching, and it seems like this particular paper is actually, no, it's not an April Fool. It's a real <laughs> paper. So that's exciting. Um, but that gave me an idea. So I have collected three different papers here. Two are April Fool's from t Ooh. 2016, written by mm -hmm. scientists. And the other is not an April Fool. I'm going to read you the titles. I want is, you to guess. Is one of them going to be his? One of them is this one. Okay. Yeah. Ah. I want you to guess which the one that John sent in that isn't an April Fool is. So the titles are Astrology in the Era of Exoplanets, Pie in the Sky, and A Cloaking Device for Transiting Planets. They're so, all exciting titles. Okay. okay. Well, the astrology one is definitely astrology an April Fool's in the joke. era That's... of exoplanets. Pie in the sky and what the cloaking Clo cloaking for the cloaking it... device for transiting planets. Cloaking device for transiting planets. Oh, I mean, the ast the astrology one has to be an April Fool's joke. Does it? Anyway. Does it really? Oh, it definitely. I mean, has because to we don't be... know the content of it, right? It could just be an intention grabbing but like title. A, like a so I don't know much about astrology, about but I did astrology. a little bit of looking to read up on this. Uh -huh. yes. um, so if you want, we can discuss what all of these papers are and then you can... That would help. Yes. I feel, yes, I context like would be useful. <laughs> okay, so um, I didn't know much about astrology, so let's start with that one. Um, but am I right in saying it relies on the locations of celestial bodies to predict your futures? Yes, That's my nice. understanding. So, yeah, whichever, yes. <laughs> one, whichever one is... So there, there's all these, you know, you have all the constellations yeah. and the sun moves through the sky along the ecliptic throughout the year and it passes through the different constellations and your star sign is the constellation it was in 
Mm. So it was passing through. So ironically, the only one that wouldn't be visible in the sky um, is at the, the, at the one time that of influences your birth, you. Uh, is the one that influences you. Okay. So um, the attitude of this paper was it really wouldn't be that scientific to ignore sort of things in the constellations that we're more recently discovering, right? For example, exoplanets. Mm -hmm. So this paper, it mapped all of the known exoplanets and calculated where they fell inside the constellations. Um, and then it looks at correlations between the number of exoplanets discovered and the social trends of the time. Mm -hmm. And um, it also it figured out, I think this is the uh, crowning achievement of the paper in my opinion, that the, um, the largest share of the planets falls in the fire signs of Aries, Leo and Sagittarius, <laughs> um, which is apparently associated with self-centeredness. And it cites that actually... With sociological studies, it shows that we are losing our empathy as a as a human race. We're becoming really? less it, empathetic. The, the exoplanets are soaking up the. the mm. They're hailing. Empathy. They're hailing the age of the selfie. So that was paper one. Ooh. Okay, paper I mean, one. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Even though astrology is um, largely um, considered nonsense uh, mm. by astronomers, I mean, you um, wore an astrology shirt to your I did. Life, I did you? wear an astrology shirt. I have a little soft spot for Are astrology, actually. Um, <laughs> I think it's nonsense, but it's kind of nice nonsense, you know. Well, it's, like it's, it's always fun to and indulge in something you think is silly. Sometimes. Well, exactly. As yeah. long as like, yeah, and, as long as you're not mean about it. Well, yeah, that's right. And um, I think you know, um, it probably means nothing where the sun is at what time or whatever but at the same time there's nothing unscientific about saying this is where the sun was and this is where these planets were and this is what the world looked like at that time there's nothing mm. unscientific about writing that data down yes as um, long as you're not drawing conclusions that may I be feel... yes well, yeah that's true <laughs> yeah. I feel this paper missed an opportunity though surely the most astrologically sensible thing to do would have been to wonder what the constellations are from from these exoplanets, what mm. if the Greeks lived on these exoplanets? What pictures would they have drawn? Oh, and in that case, oh. which of those pictures were blocked on your birthday, and how will they alien astronomy? Oh my god! Oh well, well I mean, you there's know, an idea for a paper right there. If your that PhD seems isn't to me going to be that well, yeah. <laughs> draw pictures no in alien skies. Doctor of astrology. Mm. Okay, <laughs> okay so on. that was paper one. Moving on to paper two. Which do you want to hear about? Oh, 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 cloaking, cloaking. cloaking. Yeah. Okay. Seems... So. This paper talks about the transit method is the most commonly used method of mm -hmm. detecting exoplanets nowadays. Mm -hmm. And that is when an exoplanet passes in front of its host star, the star is dimmed very slightly. Mm -hmm. And so you realise that there's a planet there. Uh, so this paper talks about advanced civilizations may be developing the capabilities to cloak their home planets and oh, talks about ooh. how much it would cost for us to... Uh, cloak our own home planets. Similar. Oh, yeah. we should do that. So their well, idea... We, what's the point of doing that if we're sending a fleet of spaceships to tell everyone where we are? <laughs> <laughs> we can't do it's both. to confuse them. To confuse oh, we them. We can't do both. We have to pick either we tell everyone where we are or we tell nobody where we are. <laughs> so yeah, we, maybe we have to pick and choose. But this, uh, maybe these guys are in favour of hiding, mm. maybe not. But uh, they come to the conclusion that one of the best ways to cloak our planet would be to have an array of lasers. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever you pass in front of the star and you are between your star and, mm -hmm. let's say, a satellite orbiting another planet that's looking directly at you, mm -hmm. uh, you fire your lasers off. Well, wait, wait how oh, would you know? How yeah. would you know um... They could be coming from any direction. We'd so have this, to be is the, the this, is big, this is the big assumption about this paper that I thought was the main error of it, is that they assume you know the location of the person watching you. And by that point, oh, no, they probably they know, where, know you where you are. They have to know where you are, too. That's way past the ball. If we're going to be cloaking, you need to do it today. Mm. You need to do it continuously. So we should be cloaking. We should be. Right now. We, 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 we,
every mm. so often or something, hasn't it? Someone, yeah, yeah. we do, we do. So group I think we should start, you know, a lobby group, you know, Irish astrophysicists we... for cloaking. So uh, what we this really should be doing might is... change your mind about <laughs> cloaking. Uh, okay. I did a little bit of research. They quote the uh, the power of the lasers that you need in uh, order to, okay. uh, yeah, in order to cloak your planet. Right. Uh, so there are different ways you can do it. You could cloak just the oxygen signals of the planet. And for that, you would need a 160 kilowatt laser. You could cloak the optical signal of the planet. So all wave, yeah, the optical wavelength. Right. And for that, you would need a... So just hold up now. By cloak, do we mean shine a laser in all directions that is as bright as the sun? Uh, okay. As bright as the bit of the sun we're blocking. Ah, right, okay. Okay, let's, let's, let's do it this way, yeah. Let's... We want to make sure that the amount of flux that is leaving the solar system is this is the same whether words, or not the earth is yeah. in between it's the like sun. It's like camouflage. <clears throat> kind of, yeah. Like holding an inadequate leaf in front of your face. Yes. While, mm. yes. So anyway, to, to cloak the optical signals from the planet, you'd need a 30 megawatt laser. And to cloak all wavelengths, completely disguise yourselves, throw on the invisibility cloak, as it were, you'd need a 250 megawatt laser. So, so what's the most powerful laser we have currently at the moment? So yeah. actually, we've got some even more powerful lasers than that. Do we? Uh, yeah, so for example, the technique of inertial confinement, which is yeah. a technique to try and trigger nuclear fusion mm -hmm. in uh -huh. atoms by firing really powerful lasers at yeah. them. They have lasers that are terawatts and more, but they only go off for billionths of a second at a time. Uh -huh. Whereas these guys suggest that even if we knew where this uh, observing spy in the sky was, we'd need to have our laser on for 10 hours a year. Oh okay, my God. so I, I did oh some research. Um, yeah. The av average price that I found... I did more work than I was when I was looking for a contract <laughs> for my house. Actually. Um, the average price per kilowatt hour is 10 pence. Okay. So right. to cloak all oxygen signals, it would cost about 160 pounds per hour. All optical signals, it would cost 30,000 pounds per hour. And uh, to cloak all wavelengths, it would be the low, low price of 250,000 pounds per hour for oh, a God. minimum of 10 hours a year. If you knew what a telescope was. If you knew was. where they were, yes. Mm. And if you didn't know where they were, then it would be that multiplied by the amount of hours in a year, which yeah. is lots. I haven't done that calculation, but that's... Anyone can do I that, feel like, and that's I feel like a bit expensive. Right? I, just, I just feel like it's a lot cheaper for us all to shut our eyes, and then if we can't see them, they can't see us. <laughs> maybe we should just make... Maybe we should just send out we are very scary sounds. Mm. Over the telescope. That might attract like. the bad. I'm not situation. sure. Yeah. I don't know much about alien psychology, to be honest. Yeah, well, maybe that's that's another <laughs> but paper that can this be written. seems. I mean, for the price of not getting annihilated by a scary alien, yeah. not that expensive. I also least. wonder whether um, having those lasers on all the time would be sort of adverse to the sort of the planet as a well. the whole. There, there is a point yeah. at which there is a point at which you can ignite the atmosphere. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't, think I don't remember what it is. I think you yeah. have to... XKCD did a what if. Yeah, I remember that. Mentioned this at one point. Maybe we'll <laughs> add that to the show notes. Okay, well. so again, what I'm hearing here is an idea which is pretty out there, but um, some scientific research and some investigation that nonetheless uh, is sound. Hmm. I would lean more towards this than the astrology one. Yeah, so would I. However, so would I. it's not a very useful paper considering... It requires information we just don't have, and by the time we would have, it would be useless. Okay, yes. so shall we move on to the last paper? 
Mm -hmm. uh, this is pie in the sky. And actually, this is a, a quite a funny example of the dangers of a posteriori statistics. Mm -hmm. So do you guys know what that is? Say those words again. A posteriori statistics. A posteriori. Deciding what stats and um, techniques you want to apply after you have the data. So yeah, exactly. This is a technique that's becoming more and more popular as we have really big data and we have really rich ah, data sets. Mm -hmm. For example, with WMAP and Planck, uh, we collect all the data first and then we look for well statistical oddities mm -hmm. for example That's afterwards so basically like a good way of doing things. it's uh, asking what oddities can i find with the data but you've got to remember that by looking at a really rich data set in many 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 ways mm -hmm. many different ways you're gonna see something you're gonna unlikely events are gonna occur and sometimes they might be silly and it's about what what's the best way to define what's silly and what's actually something that's interesting and something that might fit a theory. So this, I've this, got an example uh, of this. Sorry, go on. We've got the WMAP satellite, which mapped out the cosmic microwave background. And very quickly after they mapped it to this really high resolution, they saw the initials of Stephen Hawking's <laughs> written <laughs> in in a font on the on cosmic, the on the CMB. Yeah, exactly. What? So was it Windings? Was that the font? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It was a, it was an S and an H. Oh, very okay. in the sky. In the sky. Obviously, the probability of seeing this in CMB is infinitesimal, right? Mm. That's that's really unlikely. But it's sort of silly as well. There's yeah, no scientific mm -hmm. theory really that would reasonably suggest that Stephen Hawking's name should be imprinted on the cosmic microwave background. No. Unless yet, unless he's an alien. Yeah. <gasps> and and and. This micro fleet is his way home. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just putting it out there. Okay, so. Oh my god. <laughs> we need to know when to take these anomalies that we see in big data seriously mm -hmm. and when to take them as silly things. And actually, this is giving away that this one is an April Fool, but if you do take these anomalies seriously all the time, then you might end up with a paper whose conclusion is something like this. And uh, their conclusion is there is a remarkable correspondence between anomalies in the digits of pi and in the anomalies in the CMB. So there are links between how the digits of the irrational number pi, which mm -hmm. goes on forever, and the CMB. There are links there which they've discovered. But you could find links between the digits in pi and anything you want. This is like this is like that website. Every book that's ever written. This is like that website of the weird correlations. Yeah. Have you seen that one? It's like it's this one. Oh my god, it's brilliant! It's like a website, and it's just it shows all these different plots of how things like ice cream consumption in the state of Idaho is correlated with you know death by couch. Yeah. Or also like the flying spaghetti monster one of pirates. Lack of pirates is um, correlated with uh, global, global warming. warming. Mm. Ah, and yes, this is yeah. traditional eye patch are parrots. Pirates. pirates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, complete with references to Douglas Adams and yeah. fake quotes by Wonderful. Mark Twain. Okay. They have written this paper, and in my opinion, it's the crowning achievement of this paper is they've generated a word search. They've done a complicated, and I quote, a complicated transformation on the digits of pi, and they've created a word search for you to play with. And these it's in the paper. These people sound like they have a lot of time in their hands. <laughs> well, oh. it, it, it was okay. April Fool's. Anyway, so that, yeah. one's, an so April that Fool's one's definitely one. an April Fool's. The astrology one, I feel, would have to be. So that leaves... The laser one, as okay. serious. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what about you, Fiona? I just, I just don't know. I mean, I know they're both a bit silly, but I also think there's, there's nothing wrong with them, as you know, you know, as scientific research. I mean, you don't say what conclusions they come to in the astrology. Well, maybe right? if you read the papers themselves, you might come to a different opinion because obviously they're written mm. in very different language, and I think yeah. the astrology one is a pretty withering uh, <laughs> commentary on 
astrology. Is it really? Okay. Quite possibly. Oh. Well, in so, that case, in that case, I, okay, I'm, I'm with Trey's. I'm with Trey's. That I'm being s- said, that being said, the pie in the sky one is possibly the most useful one. Actually, because yeah. Because it actually demonstrates that. a really useful... Ah, so you it's think a learning. I've, it's a learning paper. You, you think I've told you a lie here. You come away with something useful, as opposed to with the laser one, you come away with, well, that's not actually very useful. Yeah. You come away don't. with this one going, I should be careful. I mean, they're, they're, being, they're being funny and they're joking, but they're actually making a really good point. They are, yeah. yeah. No, it's... Yeah. Um, and the WMAP people actually make that point when they announce that they found that Stephen Hawkins initials in the sky. <laughs> also, in the digits of pi, Stephen's Haw- Stephen Hawkins' name was in that word search. It was uh, his whole name as well. Stephen uh, William uh, Hawkins. But don't they say you can um, you can find every book that's ever written or will be written in the digits of pi because it goes on forever? Mm, and there's a very interesting website that actually uh, has every book that's ever written and will ever be written, which I've that seen. That is a brilliant website. Have you mm. have you actually searched for things in that? Because it's I really have. It's really good. I've read the Very book that it was weird. based on as well. It's based on a, st- <laughs> a short story by a guy called Borges, and mm. it's really interesting to read. But, okay, final decisions, guys, because we are dragging on a bit. Lasers. Lasers. Lasers, Lasers, Lasers is, the is the not one. the April Fool. Yeah. Oh, are okay. we right? I'm going to take that as final. And you're right. Oh, my God. So, yeah, John, this was a real paper. And... They make some good points. You can do this. It's just it would be expensive. And also and they assume that you know <laughs> where the alien yes, would be. Yes, it's a long shot. And Which that is, then is... I would say too late. Too late. Well, so if it's an alien civilization that's not well advanced, there's no point in blocking yourself from them. If they are advanced, it's too late. <laughs> there we go. So that was a very different odd and ends. Mm. Fun though. I like yes. it. Variety is the spice of life. You could add in an archive versus snarkive. Um, <laughs> part of the uh... that's a really good shout uh-huh. okay we'll ask that in the survey shall yes. we add archive versus snarkive oh that's a really good idea I would, mm. I would enjoy that okay uh, um, and we will put all of those papers on our website I think so people can take a look if they want and see how they're written actually the footnotes in the pie in the sky one can be quite funny <laughs> I'd recommend it <laughs> so moving on from those April Fool's jokes uh, to some things which are definitely not April Fool's jokes and real facts, we have Anna Scaife answering your questions in Ask an Astronomer. For this month's Ask an Astronomer, we are joined by Dr Anna Scaife, who will be answering three listener-submitted questions. Our first question is from Christoph Cranbull. How do you deal with all the interference of electromagnetic waves around Jodrell Bank? I wonder every time I pass it in a car or on a train. Does it become worse over time? Will there come a point where it renders Jodrell Bank useless? So this is a... um a very important question, actually, as, as, as well as being um, a good question to ask, because radio interference is a constant problem for all radio astronomy observatories. Um, and certainly Jodrell Bank does not have an easy time of it. As the person asking the question correctly pointed out, the train line goes right past the edge of the observatory. And the observatory is not that isolated. It sits close to a number of towns and really not that far from Manchester Airport. And in fact, the radar for Manchester Airport really limits a lot of the science we can do in that particular direction. Radar itself is, is, whilst it cuts out a particular direction for us, it's a very clear signal. What's more difficult to deal with is the, the sort of the general hum of all of the background noise around Jodrell Bank. And this is noise that's produced by everything from your mobile phone to spark plugs and car engines. It's a big source of interference. Um, any kind of wireless technology, really anything anything electronic produces a signal. And the dish, the level dish, is so large that it's sensitive enough to pick up pretty much anything. Now, Jodrell Banks doesn't have a protected 
radio quiet zone around it, which is a disadvantage for us as radio astronomers. A lot of other radio astronomy observatories around the world have um, nationally protected radio quiet zones around them. If you take something like the Green Bank Telescope in uh, the US, the radio quiet zone around that is so severe that you can't bring in a non-diesel car within the observatory area. And that's because of the interference from the spark plugs in petrol cars. You also can't take a mobile phone onto site, and you can't do that at Jodrell either. But at Greenbank, you also can't take on an iPod, a digital camera, or any other kind of electronic equipment that you might carry on your person. At Jodrell Bank, we don't enforce quite such strict rules. We do ask people to turn off their mobile phones. Um, as it tells you when you go into the observatory at Jodrell, the level's sensitive enough to pick up a mobile phone signal from Mars. So someone standing right next to the dish having a conversation is, is pretty loud for us. But obviously we want people to enjoy their experience at the observatory, and that means taking photos and you know, not completely stripping themselves of all of their other electronic equipment. We do try to maintain a reasonably radio quiet environment, and that means that we examine all the planning applications that go in around the observatory. And in fact, the director of the observatory reads through every planning application, which is a huge job because you have to cover a very wide radius around the observatory. And we're not always successful if something is going to interfere with the telescope. There are planning proposals that get through that do cause us problems. And we have to develop a very sophisticated suite of cleaning tools, if you like, for our data. So we have to excise the radio frequency interference as often as we can. Sometimes we just can't do that, though, and it just saturates the signal, at which point we just lose the data. That means that every new source of interference erodes the science from Jodrell Bank a little bit more. So it's, it's very difficult for us to, to find that balance between not trying to impose restrictions on the people who live in the area and still maintaining the kind of science that you expect to come out of a national facility, which is what Jodrell Bank is. It is the UK's only national radio facility and it puts UK scientists in a very advantageous position when it comes to competing on the world stage. So it's very sad when we can't do that because of some particular problem in the RFI environment. So this is really a veto for the Jogcast plans to launch a radio station. <laughs> you, you can have the radio station, you just can't have a transmitter. <laughs> yeah. Our second question is from Paul Stevenson. He wants to know what the best way is for an amateur to get started with radio astronomy, and are there any books or courses you would recommend? Um, yeah, so radio astronomy, I think, is perhaps slightly less accessible than other forms of astronomy because it relies so heavily on an understanding of electromagnetism and signal processing. Um, but there are definitely ways you can get involved. A good way to get started, I have to say, is to go and find your local ham radio um, club, <laughs> and they'll... they'll uh, induct you into the ways of electromagnetic waves and radio signals. The other thing to do is uh, to come and visit us at Jodrell Bank. The Discovery Centre gives you an overview and an introduction into uh, radio astronomy and radio astronomy in the UK particularly. If you want something a bit more technical and you want to delve into the details, then there are, there are actually quite a few good texts on radio astronomy. Most of them entitled something pretty obvious like Radio Astronomy. The book by Burke and Graham Smith, which is called Radio Astronomy, is a very accessible entry point to radio astronomy. There's a very good book called Radio Telescopes, so slightly obvious title, <laughs> um, by Rolfs, which is a very nice introduction to the technical details of radio astronomy. If you don't want to go out and buy a book, you don't have to. There's a very nice online course, which I particularly like, and which I also recommend for my students, 
which is called Essential Radio Astronomy, which uh, was written by Jim Condon at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in the US. Um, and to find that, just type Essential Radio Astronomy into Google. And it's a very detailed course that covers everything from astrophysical radio emission mechanisms to how a radio telescope works and how you can string radio telescopes together into interferometers. Um, so that's, that's a great introduction if you really want to get into the details. Our final question is another one from Christoph, who asks, what difference would putting a telescope on the dark side of the moon make? He's thinking in general, but also about spotting inbound asteroids that could threaten the Earth. So I have to say, I don't know a lot about spotting asteroids, um, but I can say there would be advantages to putting a radio telescope on the far side of the moon from the perspective of receiving more, uh, receiving radio signals more in a more sensitive way, primarily because, one, you have no radio frequency interference or a very limited amount of radio frequency inf interference on the far side of the moon. Um, and secondly, um, for low radio frequencies, it's very good because it puts you outside the Earth's ionosphere which is a big source of um, problems, if you like. Um, for radio observ observing at low frequencies, the, the ionosphere causes uh, refraction and attenuation of radio waves, and really below a frequency of about 10 to 30 megahertz, you're not going to get anything usable out of a radio telescope on the surface of the Earth. So putting a radio telescope on the far side of the Moon or in space generally is very good for low frequency radio astronomy. And there's lots of interesting science to do at those wavelengths. Um, a lot of the early universe, what we call the, the dark ages of the universe, is observable in the radio if you can go down to those very low frequencies. But, as I say, from the surface of the Earth, it's not really possible. Um, there have been some proposals to put radio telescopes in space. Nothing massively successful so far, but it's definitely a possibility. Thank you very much, Dr. Sk. Thank you for your time. Thanks for that, Anna. Okay, so now um, moving on to the feedback. Um, apart from the email about the April Fool's paper, we got no other feedback. We had no post. We had nothing on Facebook except for some likes and shares. Sad face. Um, mm. Yeah, we're, we're very sad. Send us post. We're but it's come it. down from lots of feedback after Jocasta. Well, that's true. So. That's true. And look, we're looking up here at our lovely postcard wall. So really, we're not doing. And too hopefully, badly. with our survey, and I'm plugging this all the time. But we'll <laughs> yes. have a lot of feedback for that. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I'm excited about that. Uh, okay, so just to remind you, because you've all forgotten, uh, you can follow us. Um, you can now find us on iTunes. Uh, so please rate us and review us on iTunes. We'd be really excited about that. Uh, thanks for all the likes and shares on Facebook. And thanks for all the uh, follows and retweets on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch, you can also do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And not yet on Instagram, because that's still not a thing. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. And thanks to Avaskan Himanit Sarah and Richard Batty for the interviews. The editors were Charlie Walker, Ian Harrison, Nell McCallum and Ben Shaw. The producer was Moni Kenson. And so, until next time... Jod on! Jod on.